This is Guns and Butter. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, William Pepper. Today's show, An Act of State, Part 2. William Pepper is author of An Act of State, The Assassination of Martin Luther King, his second book on the King case. Attorney William Pepper represented James Earl Ray on appeal. James Earl Ray was convicted of the assassination of Dr. King. Today's show, An Act of State, Part 2, is from a presentation by the author in 2003 at the publication of his book, William Pepper. So we fought for a period of um, about a part of two years to try to get a trial for James Ulrich before he died. And he died in 1998, and we were not successful in getting the trial. We tried to get them to agree to let us take him to University of Pittsburgh, where I had negotiated with John Fung to have him on their liver transplant list. He had uh, a hepatitis C turned into cirrhosis. He had a liver disease. And the, all the applications I made to the courts in Tennessee were denied, refused permission. And even though all the expenses were going to be paid, it was going to cost the state of Tennessee anything, they were not about to let James Ray be saved. So um, his death ended the possibility of a, of a trial where that evidence could come out. And so the family and I caucused at length, and we talked about what are the other options. And the only other option that I knew of was a civil case, a wrongful death suit. And we could file it against Lloyd Jowers, who was still alive, and other conspirators, government and non-government, known and unknown. Um, it was a very lengthy debate. The family had taken a terrible beating on the, in the media continually. And some members of the family said, well, look, what good is this going to do? Even if we have this trial, no one's going to know about it. And it's going to be a waste of time and uh, money. And why should we, should we keep up this fight? I mean, what, what is the point of it? And this debate was raging back and forth, and everybody was expressing their opinions. And I'm just sitting there listening, because this is the family's decision. I can't make this for them. They've got to make it. Uh, I told them what the, what the possibilities were and that we could bring the action and that we could put on, under oath, all of the evidence that we had. There would be a way of doing that. So that was the end of my responsibility. And finally, it was Miss King, it was Coretta King, who said, who just stopped the debate. And she said, you know, I have to always ask myself when I get involved in situations that are controversial, what would Martin have done? What would Martin have wanted me to do? What would he have wanted this family to do? And she said, without any doubt at all, Martin would have said, go and do it. So she said, that's what we're going to do. There's going to be a trial. And she made that decision. And then everybody else, of course, fell in line. because She makes those decisions for the family, even now when they're grown. So we tried this case over 30 days uh, in Memphis Circuit Court against Mr. Jowers and others. We called 70 witnesses, 70 witnesses, put on all the evidence, jury heard it all. And we did it one year after filing, because we were waiting to get a particular judge and we got him. 
to sit on the case. He was a black judge named Swearingen. And he had a reputation of being an honest man, decent man, but he was also retiring. And it turned out this was to be his last case. And so it was a perfect situation for all of us. So we tried that case, and this time it didn't take a jury seven hours. It took them about 59 minutes. And they came back after hearing 30 days of testimony. They came back with a verdict uh, for the King family, which effectively exonerated James Earl Ray and ruled that there was a conspiracy to kill Martin King involving agents of the government of the United States, state of Tennessee, city of Memphis. End of story. And you probably never heard about that verdict because <laughs> it didn't receive any publicity at all after the first 12 hours. Initially, there was a, a little, there were news breaks on it. But then after the first 12 hours, it just faded. And no one ever heard about it. With all this evidence, the family said, now, Clinton, Mr. President, you should appoint a, uh, a truth and reconciliation kind of commission with subpoena power. And let's now open the whole thing up. And they met with him in the Oval Office. And um, he refused to do that. And he nevertheless, he threw it to his attorney general. And so the attorney general in the Civil Rights Division conducted an investigation. Long story short, they waited and waited and waited until after the trial was over. And they did this investigation, but waited until after the trial was over so they could know the complete story of the trial that they had to rebut or try to rebut. And then they came out with a report which effectively just repeated the official story, the same story from 1969, 68, 69 to now. The state's case has been the same. The publicists have all had the same story. The Attorney General's report was just the same, was that um, James O'Reilly acted alone. He was a lone gunman, and he shot him from the bathroom window. And no dealings with the bushes or why they were cut down or early the next morning, why the police had the bushes, the whole crime scene sanitized. Nothing of that uh, whatsoever. So I cover in detail the Attorney General's investigation in this work, and I cover the, summarize all the evidence of the trial, although the 4,000 pages of transcripts are on the website of the King Center. It's thekingcenter.com. If anybody wants to read the actual testimony of witnesses, by all means you can. You can go there to do it. I've just summarized it in the book, obviously. And the um, Attorney General's report, though, I have taken apart line by line uh, because I felt I had to do that as I felt I had to do that for the state's case. Right. So that's really where we are in terms of the case now. Um, the family is just so happy, finally, that they know what happened to this man. And they know how they lost their loved one. Uh, you remember Bernice was only three, little thing. She was only three. And she said to me, uh, when I was at uh, the 75th birthday for her mother, a party for her mother, she came up to me for the first time. She said, I never wanted to approach you, never wanted to talk to you. I've never been able to deal with this assassination. I've never been to Memphis. And Yolanda, the oldest daughter, had never been to Memphis till the trial either. Never been to Memphis. Only thing I've ever known about my father is what I've read in history books. You know, and um, because of your work, I now have a picture of not only of him, but of the enemies he had and why they had to, they felt they had to kill him. So now the whole thing is much clearer. So from the family standpoint, I think it's, um, 
it's over and it's useful. There are still a few loose ends that I have to take care of to f finalize things. But basically, there is little else that one can do in this case, except the record is there. Of all the assassinations, this is the clearest in terms of how it happened, why it happened. The facts are there. And people will say, no, you know, it's a fantasy, and it's a conspiracy theory. But if they care to read testimony of eyewitnesses, they will ultimately be convinced. I've, uh, when the trial was going on, all of the mainstream media stayed in the hallway, with one exception, but all stayed in the hallway. A friend of mine is a counsel for Court TV, and he told me before the trial, this is such an important trial in the history of America that we're going to televise it live every day. Uh, his cameras stayed in the hallway, except when Coretta King testified or Dexter or Andy Young, somebody like that. But, and it wasn't his fault because the CEO of Court TV decided they would not cover this evidence. It's as simple as that. Just as the New York Times told Christopher Lehman Haupt uh, in November of 1995, don't review this book. First time in 25 years he said it ever happened. I told him to pull his review of my first work. Um, the media is controlled on issues like this, on cases like this, that have to do with national security. And now, at this point in time, where government agency credibility is ever more important because of the war this nation is about to embark on in the face of enormous opposition throughout the world, and even at home, you know that 75%, 75% of the population living in the British Isles 75% of the English people oppose this war. And Blair is going up against 75% of his own popular will. And that number is rising here and rising throughout the world. So a credibility of government agencies is very important now. You can't expect any work that's attacking government agencies to be looked upon with any degree of favor by intelligence, law enforcement, or the military. It simply is not going to happen. But the lesson is for us, and we must teach our children, please. It's important that the children be taught how this system functions and how this government functions and what it does. Because long after we're gone, we will need someone to carry on the educational chain, to be links in that teaching chain forever. It may not be possible to preserve this republic. I see the death of the Republic um, happening. And remember, Rome was a Republic. And looking back, one can see the, uh, the reasons and the signs of the demise and can understand it. And one looking at all the symptoms that have happened here in this country over the last year and a half has got to be very concerned about the demise of, of the Republic and the health of liberty in this country, which is not not very good. So I think the absence of Martin King is being felt now more than ever uh, and there has been no replacement of course and that that is the most effective thing that's why this assassination in my view is the most significant of all of them because there was no independent leader to follow on from him and he was the last in the chain of, uh, of people who cared in my view, in the Anglo-American world, who cared about uh, the wretched of the earth. And his roots go back at least to John Ruskin, 
not to Gandhi. Gandhi was a superb tactician and they were soulmates, but Martin King's real mentor was John Ruskin, the British uh, social political economist who tried to focus Victorian attention on the, the wretched of his time and who tried to indicate the importance of, for the civility and humanity of a civilization, the importance of seeing how they treat the poorest amongst them and the most rejected amongst them, how they are regarded, how they are treated. Martin King felt that. And he had become uh, globally involved uh, in, and is an international figure well beyond it. King Day in this country is a celebration of a, of a civil rights leader. It's the I Have a Dream speech and those kinds of things. Martin King had put all of that domestic civil rights emphasis, as important as it was, behind him. He was now a part of an international movement that had to do with peace and justice. And he saw war as the greatest scourge that human beings can participate in and visit upon one another. So as we were about to send hundreds of cruise missiles into Baghdad, another ancient civilization, you know, the Sumerians, 6,000-year-old Sumerian civilization, had its roots and its home in the southern part of Iraq. And if we're about to destroy once again an ancient culture and civilization and slaughter innocent women and children, the lessons of Vietnam come back to haunt us. But they are overridden by this government's preoccupation with, with other worldly goods and desires. So that is the story of uh, Act of State, and I'll be happy to answer any questions you have. You're listening to William Pepper, author of An Act of State, The Assassination of Martin Luther King, from a presentation by the author in 2003. Today's show is An Act of State, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We continue with questions and answers with the author. Have you ever personally felt threatened? Yeah, sure. sure. I used to get calls before. Going into court very often in Memphis, I'd get a call um, sometimes night before, sometimes the morning before I'd set up. And uh, they'd say, um, you know, we're going to get you today. Uh, we're going to get you. We're, we'll be on a rooftop and we'll get you. If we don't get you going in, we'll get you coming out. <laughs> and uh, uh, that was, of course, just to shake me up more than anything else, I think. But I, I did wear a, a bulletproof vest in court all the time. I'm probably one of the few lawyers ever felt the necessity of doing that because they, there were these, these these kinds of threats. Uh, I didn't try to pay much attention to them. Although it got to be a bit warm sometimes. Yes? Okay, you said that you felt threatened in court, but I mean, what about now when you're going around, you know, talking about this book and no. the book is becoming maybe so well-known because people are starting to talk about mm. it? I, I don't think the book is going to become well-known. No, so? no. And... Uh, no, uh, it's, it's never going to be reviewed. Uh, it's never going to have any mainstream coverage. I mean, I have friends in, in media and, um, you know, personally, and they, they say, Bill, don't take it serious, don't take it personally, but, you know, you never can be on any of... I've been on the Today Show since I was a kid. You know, I was 60, 1967 was the first time I was on the Today Show when I came back from Vietnam. 
and over the years on other issues and things. And they, I know all those people. And Brian Gumble once on the television trial, you know, was so skeptical. And it started off as a very hostile uh, interview. And as I worked the, through the case and the facts, and we finished the seven-minute segment, he said, Bill, can you stay? And he canceled the next <laughs> and we continued. So they, people have developed respect and, uh, for the work. But when it comes to the actual story itself, particularly because of the involvement of the military, however peripheral that was, they didn't kill him, but however they were involved in that, um, that is the, uh, that, that's an area that they just will not touch. Yes? Why do you think they had two teams, assassination teams? Well, they had two targets. And I know they get two army or yeah. military personnel. Yeah. But why this role also? Well, the, the civilian, the mafia head, that was really always to be the primary. They were to be the primary, the primary shooter. That was the. They were the cutouts, and the hope was that the, uh, that the, you know, that the contra that contract would work, and the military would not have to be used. And it turned out it, it did work that way. And it, but it was coordinated. The whole operation was coordinated. There was a, a couple of people at senior levels in the 902nd Military Intelligence Group that coordinated the operation. I'll tell you what I mean by that. The 902nd had a joint venture with Carlos Marcello's organization. It was the 902nd that arranged for the theft of weapons from arsenals and forts and camps that were trucked into Marcello's residence and then sent around by flatboat to Houston. And the 902nd and Marcello's organization were splitting 50-50 the proceeds. And they used that money for black ops. So they were, they were very much together. And when the first book came out, it was to go with um, Harper Collins, Rupert Murdoch's company. And at the end of the day, Murdoch came down and said, you take out the chapter on the military, because it was a mafia hit. You take that out, and we'll publish your book. Otherwise, we won't. I couldn't take it out because it was so linked up. Well, yes. I very much believe that it was coordinated through government agencies and, and they used to cut out the mafia to do it. But to play the devil's advocate, on such a, a simple cut and dry case of killing one man, why would there need to be so many agencies involved? Why not just pay a, an experienced sniper just to do it. Why have backup? Why have arms coming in and all that? There seems to be overkill for such a small thing. Can you address that point? Okay. Martin King was not a small thing. The assassination of Martin King was a major, major event. It required, in their view, extraordinary planning and preparation and two or three track activities because he was so significant and I'll tell you why. I mean, obviously, what we know why in terms of his importance. For a period of time leading up to 68, there had been other efforts to kill him. There were bounty hunters. But there was, initially, Marcello hired a single guy, one guy. and gave him a rifle in a car and said, go stalk King and see if you can get a shot at him and kill him. Um, they couldn't carry it off. They couldn't do it. They couldn't get close enough. Whatever, whatever the reasons were, they were not successful in killing him. Uh, one of the members of the team who was not known to Steve Tompkins, 
but whom I found separately. Um, I didn't find him separately. That's wrong. I found his best friend separately. And um, this guy had been killed. He had been actually shot and killed. And his best friend was always thinking that he was killed because of his role in the King assassination. He was a part of the unit that was there as well. Uh, but he was from Mississippi, not from Alabama. He said that he was instructed um, during the Selma march to try to get King. And he was a part of the unit. He was a sniper part, infiltrated into a unit uh, that were uh, watching the march. And he said he was, he, he was told to try to kill King on that march. And he said at one point he had him in his sights and he was going across a bridge and he turned quickly away and he didn't, he didn't get him and he didn't get the opportunity. This is mafia or military? This is military. This is one of the guys who was a part of the, the, the military operation in, in Memphis. And he said he had King in his sights then. That was 65. So I think that there were various types of various plans. There was a, um, a policeman in Louisville, Kentucky, who told his story to the, to the House Select Committee. Uh, and, you know, Martin's brother lived in, in Louisville, and Martin used to come into Louisville to visit his brother. And this policeman was approached by some other policemen in Louisville and said there was a, there was a contract offer out to kill Martin Luther King when he came to Louisville. And they wanted him, this cop, to participate uh, along with them in the exercise of killing him and, and covering it up. And he said, um, he played along with them for a bit, and he tape recorded the offer made to him by a, his fellow cop. Right? And then he turned them down. And then he said they had a meeting in police headquarters, and he, he identified the local FBI agents who were involved with that meeting with the local police department. Um, and he all of a sudden became a pariah. And they started surveilling him and harassing him. And that went on until after King was killed in Memphis. So there were, uh, there were other elements of the story. Now, he gave the uh, select committee that tape. And they validated the tape. They authenticated it. And when they called the other cop who made the statement on tape, he said, that was a joke. No. So there were other efforts afoot to kill him, whether it's due to incompetence or circumstance, it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. This one was put together very, very carefully and was well planned and obviously was successful. Just one quick follow-up, yeah. You mentioned about mm. special forces guys leaving the country because they had a fear of a cleanup operation. Are you meaning that there were people who wanted to kill them so dead men don't talk, or what, yeah. what do you mean? Yeah, clean up means the agency was given the task of cleaning them up. The CIA or somebody? Yeah, yeah, okay. they did most of the cleanup, I think. Okay. All right. Where were you at in Vietnam in 1966? 66. 66. I was, in, I was there in 66. I was in various parts of the country. I was in OMK. I was curious if you were in that. No, I, was, I spent uh, uh, a lot of time in Pleiku and in the Central Highlands and uh, Da Nang and the Trang. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, Ramsey Clark has been a major proponent against the war now, and I was wondering whether you've approached him since he's left his position as Attorney General to figure out what, why he would uh, stomp on this this trial. Well, Ramsey Clark came to my seminar. I teach. I convened the seminar on international human rights at Oxford, 
And, and Ramsey uh, came to my seminar recently on capital punishment issue, because he's been a, a foe of capital punishment. Um, now, Ramsey and I are, are, are dear friends, and I have a great respect for him, and we have been together many times since he left Attorney General's office. This case is one that um, has separated us. I mean, I've not ever been able to understand quite um, the position. He was the Attorney General. He was conned by Deloche and Hoover, and, uh, but he was also the only Attorney General during King's active <coughs> tenure who refused Hoover's request to wiretap him and put surveillance on him. All the others did. Ramsey didn't. So it's a very mixed bag with him. I've never understood entirely why he hasn't come around. He's done, as you know, in the back of the book he's done, or maybe you don't know, the back of the book he's done a, um, a, a credit to me for the work. But that doesn't mean he, you know, he will embrace it. But he has he has done that. So, now, one of the things that came out was the FBI <laughs> agent that found a note or that had the note from the Mustang. Did anything ever become of that? Yeah, um, Donald Wilson is a, a very brave man. He was a young FBI agent, and he was asked to go out and check out uh, this Mustang, which was James's car that it was found in a parking lot at a housing development in Atlanta. And he opened the door on the passenger as he went out there with another agent, and he, he opened the door on a passenger side, which he said was slightly ajar, I think. And out of the, a pocket in the car door fell an envelope, and he panicked. He said, ooh. I think uh, maybe I'm messing up evidence, or I've, I'm, I just panicked. He put his foot on it. And then when no one was looking, he reached down, he picked it up, and he put it in his pocket, and he just took it away with him, didn't turn it over to anybody. And when he read it, he realized what he had found. Uh, and it was, um, he didn't realize fully what he had found. He never, he didn't realize fully what he had found until he, till we checked out the phone number that was on there. We finally checked out the phone number. He found so there were several pieces of paper, but but what most significantly was one with with Raoul's name on it. Then there was a telephone number, with a J and a telephone J and a telephone number. That telephone number turned out to be a phone number of a club that was run by Jack Ruby in Dallas. And so what he had done in one fell swoop effectively was find a piece of paper that linked apparently critical people in the, in the King assassination with, with Jack Ruby. Now, I had heard that I stayed away, I've always stayed away from the links with the Kennedy assassination. But when I came aware of that, I went into Dallas and I interviewed separately some of Ruby's people, as Ruby's uh, bar girls and waitresses. And I showed them separately this photograph of Raoul and asked them not to call any of the others that I was going to see, which they didn't. And each one of them identified this man, Raoul, as having been with Jack Ruby, seen with him many times in the carousel and other clubs. And of course, Glenda Grabo uh, always had said she saw Ruby and Raoul together in Houston. And um, something even more sinister than that in terms of her relationship with Ruby. But she was spot on, yeah. So what happened with that, in answer to your question, because that, that was put on the evidence at the trial, the Attorney General's office subjected that FBI, former FBI agent, to sheer hell, uh, harassed him, 
threatened him with prosecution, uh, surveilled him in order to get the originals of those uh, those documents that he found, which they now have, uh, and then they dismissed them, of course, as having uh, any any reality. So. Um, I haven't talked to Donald in a while, but I need to because, I mean, he's, he's a man who suffered a lot. Um, they got his wife's health records, for example. Yeah, they tried to destroy him. Yeah. At the time, there was a lot of rumors going around on a couple of different people that was in King's entourage. Was Jesse Jackson or anybody else, was there any documentation or is there any documentation on them being informants for the FBI? Well, I'll tell you a story about uh, Brother Jackson. Um, I'll tell you two stories about Brother Jackson. Yeah, I'll probably tell you more than one than two. Um, the Invaders were a militant group in, in Memphis, Tennessee. They were a neighborhood community organizing group. They were equivalent of the Black Panthers in Memphis. Um, and they took a bad rap in terms of the riot uh, that broke out on King's March on March 28th, which was provoked by out-of-town people, Blackstone Ranger types from Chicago rather than the Invaders. So when Martin King came back the last time, he wanted to meet with them, and he wanted to involve them as monitors in the march. And um, so they were put up at the Lorraine Motel. They, were, they had two rooms at the motel on the same level as Dr. King, just down the hall from him. Well, at about quarter to six, 15, 16 minutes before the killing, there was a knock on the door of one of the invaders. And it was one of the uh, hotel staff, the motel staff, and said, um, you're all going to have to pack your bags and leave now because SCLC has just told us that they're not going to continue to pay your bill. And this was, this was total shock. These guys were there to work with King for a peaceful march. It was supposed to take place on the 5th or the 6th of April. Um, and they'd, have, they'd had good meetings. And all of a sudden, this woman appears and says, no, they're not going to pay you. Besides, it was almost 6 o'clock. Everybody knows that you know, if you stay in a hotel room after like 1 or 2 or certainly 3, even with a late start, you're going to pay. The room is charged. Nobody's gonna, you're going to pay. So this didn't make sense. But they didn't cause any trouble. So they said, all right, you know, we'll leave. If they want us to leave, we'll leave. But he said, who... Uh, who at SCLC gave you this order to get us out of here? And they said, Reverend Jackson. And at that moment, the guy looked over the shoulder of her, and he saw down in the courtyard Jesse Jackson looking at his watch. That doesn't mean anything, does it? Except Jackson had no responsibility for the invaders at all, no contact with them, no authority over them. They were run by Jim Orange and Hosea Williams. and Jackson had nothing to do with them. And all of a sudden, he's, he's telling them to leave. So I, we found that strange. Uh, we also found distasteful uh, him running up to the balcony and putting his hands in Martin's blood and then putting them on his shirt and wiping his shirt and then somehow getting to Chicago the next day on the Today Show with the bloody shirt on, talking about how he cradled Martin in his arms. And I almost hit him on the Larry King show. I got so angry with him. Dexter's there. I, and, he's, and he's lying, you know. I don't know. I got so angry with him. And Not lying about what? About where he was and what he did on the day. He wasn't up on the balcony with Martin. He was down, in the, he was down below. He came up later on. How he got to Chicago. What? I've seen a photograph of him pointing 
with King lying in, at his feet. He came up on the balcony uh, uh, afterwards, uh, as did Andy Young. Andy was down in the parking lot, and uh, he came up on the balcony. And uh, he, so he was up there, and uh, Billy Kyles was there, and Morel McCullough was bending over the body. That's the famous. There's a black detective that I interviewed at Memphis at one time. He said he was an officer, a police officer at the time this happened. And he told me that when he, he was the first person to get to that package that James Ray had dropped. And he says that that gun was inside of a box. And when they opened it, it was wrapped in newspaper. It was still wrapped up in newspaper. Mm. The rifle was a throw-down gun. It was not the murder weapon. And it, it was uh, dropped there, not by James O'Ray, and it was dropped probably five to seven minutes before the killing. Because that, and that was something that James's first lawyers actually discovered, the Haynes, father and son, interviewed Knipe, who ran the... Um, the gun was dropped in the doorway of a record shop, uh, Knipe's. And Knipe was interviewed by the Haynes, uh, who were the first lawyers for James. And Knipe managed to put the, he heard the thump of the dropping of the rifle in the box. Uh, he estimated about five, seven minutes before he heard the shot. Now, of course, all that gets buried, you know, but uh, that's, uh, that's, what, uh, that's what happened. You're listening to William Pepper, author of An Act of State, The Assassination of Martin Luther King, from a presentation by the author in 2003. Today's show is An Act of State, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We continue with questions and answers with the author. Yes. There was a, um, a book called Propaganda for War, I think by H.C. Patterson, uh, published by the University of Oklahoma Press in 1934. And the significance of the book is that before World War I, the British elite were manipulated by their intelligence to approach their friends in the American elite to spin United States public opinion in favor of the British role in what was basically a stalemate in Europe between Germany and, and England. The British controlled the cable traffic and then they were successfully able to propagandize the American elite to come into the war in favor of the British in World War I. And the entire United States media was successfully dominated by the American censors, which were really closely tied to the military. Now, all the current critics of American media, which are all relevant and germane, seem to overlook this military connection to the foundation of American propaganda coming out of how we got into World War I. And we've had a series of government hits on all genuine leaders in this country. And nothing ever takes off because the media is so controlled. Yeah, well, I mean, I and think... It seems that... like the military still has a uh, profound effect on American media, and people don't understand the role in that. Well, I think the, there has been a consolidation of the control of, of media in the United States that, that I've seen over the last uh, 35 years, and I'm sure it's come back long before that. But the control is you have ruling forces in this country 
Basically, I'm, in my view, the world today is run by transnational corporations, not by any governments. And government officials are just foot soldiers for the real wealth and the power of transnational corporations. And I, th I think it's important to, to understand that. You can read, there's so many new books, you can read John Pilger's The New Rulers of the World, for example, um, or David Corton, When Corporations Rule the World. Um, the details and the control over public policy that these huge corporate entities now exert means that uh, elections and elected democracy is, is farcical in many parts of the world. Now, there's an interfacing with the military because they, of course, always an intelligence. They are the, they are the ultimate protectors <laughs> of the wealth of the rulers of the world. They are ultimately protectors. And they, leaders in, 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 military leaders will go to work. Intelligence people, senior people will go to work and come back and forth from working with these large corporate entities. And so, and, and it, which includes the banks. So, I mean, I think that is the reality. There are two independent newspapers in the Western world that I know of. And I mean reasonably independent. And that is Le Monde in the French paper, and Le Monde Diplomatique, its companion, and The Guardian in England. Other than that, I don't know an independent paper. Yes? Now that Bush is in office, you find a very friendly press, a press court that doesn't ask any questions, doesn't challenge lies or inconsistencies. Well, no, the media is controlled in yeah. America. I mean, it's but very just, controlled. Yeah. Well, I mean, you should look, read Carl Bernstein. Bernstein did a piece in Rolling Stone back in the 70s. And... Um, and he's the one who's taught us about how the media is controlled. Bernstein said that in 59, Sulzberger gave Alan Dulles 12 slots on the New York Times, editorial and management. And those 12 slots have been perpetuated throughout. The agency has 12 slots on the Times, and at very senior levels and, and stringer level. Bernstein estimated from his knowledge that there are over 400 intelligence agents working in in positions in, in media today. And, and that includes book publishing, and includes the magazines, newspapers, and of course television, which is the dominant media today. So it shouldn't surprise us that these things do not get reported and do not happen. You know, I represented Jerry Ray in 1978 before the Select Committee when they disqualified Mark Lane. And in the course of that representation, we had to go to public hearings, and the morning of the public hearing that Jerry Ray testified at for the committee, there was an article in the New York Times, column one front page article, written by Wendell Rawls, Jr. And that article said that, no, it was the day before, actually, the day before, and that article said that the New York Times investigation had confirmed the FBI investigation and the House Select Committee investigation that the Ray brothers had robbed the bank in Alton, Illinois, and that was where James O'Ray got his money to stay alive on, and there was no such thing as Raoul. So this was a front page New York Times article, powerful piece. I called the um, chief of police in Alton, Illinois, and I asked him, I said, I represent Jerry Ray. He's going to have to testify before the select committee. But I've spoken to Mr. Ray about this New York Times article. And everybody seems to have confirmed the fact that he's part of the Ray brothers that robbed this bank. And um, I want you to know he's prepared to come down and give himself up. And uh, let you charge him. 
chief of police told me <laughs> the Ray brothers have never been. What are they talking about? Ray brothers have never been any suspects in this case. We know who robbed that bank. Guys who robbed that bank bought a taxi cab coming. We just haven't been able to catch them. But we know who it was. So uh, I said, well, then why did you tell the Times, the FBI, the House Select Committee, investigators? Why tell them all that Ray Brothers robbed this bank? He said, I never talked to any of these people. They never talked to me. All right, I called the uh, president of the bank. Same story. So we go into a hearing the next day, and uh, as a point of a special privilege, I raised this. They come on to this Alton, Illinois thing because they're trying, you see, they can show there was a bank robbery, then there's no Raul. And James got his money from robbing a bank. So they come on to this Alton, Illinois thing, and I raised this article. And I said, now let me tell you, let me, let me put on the record something. And I told, I put this on the, on the record of the hearings. And then I really resent how this committee is functioning in this way, obviously trying to stitch up. In collaboration with the uh, intelligence operatives at the New York Times, story made up out of a whole cloth. Everyone in the country would read it and say, ah, oh, yes, that's where he got his money. Right? And would not know, of course, what I'm saying. <laughs> so you have incidents after incidents like this. You know, the first counsel for the select committee and investigations was a former prosecutor from Philadelphia. And I, and I think a tough, hard criminal prosecutor. He, he sealed his own fate because at one point early on he said he, wanted, he was going to get, going to need all the unexpurgated records of the CIA and the FBI on this killing. He, he needed them so he could do a proper criminal, he knew how to do a criminal investigation and he, and he needed them to do that. That finished him. The New York Times sent in uh, David Burnham, a reporter called David Burnham. David Burnham started a hatchet job right from beginning to end and effectively destroyed this guy. And he, had, he was then removed, and Bob Blakey, who's been very friendly to these, these folks for a long time, came in as, as counsel. And so that, that is, um, I'm afraid, how they, uh, how, they, how they work. And that then made it very clear that the select committee was not going to do any kind of meaningful investigation. Along the same lines, I think there recently the, the budget for the committee that will investigate 9-11 has been budgeted about $3 million, I understand, whereas uh, the Clinton investigation was about $65 million. So that, that, that in itself makes quite a statement. Yeah. Well, you don't really think there's going to be a serious investigation of 9-11, no, do you? <laughs> funding kind of proves it. Yeah, in, the, in the back, yeah. I wanted to ask you two things. Very interesting talk about, about the trial, but one thing I'd like you to talk about there was a whole sideshow that went on to this with what happened to Judge Joe Brown down in Memphis, okay, when he actually decided to honestly investigate this. And then the second question I wanted to ask you, in my opinion, one of the most interesting aspects of this case is what happens to Ray after he leaves Memphis, okay? He goes south, then he goes north, then he goes to Canada, and the most unbelievable thing happens. This penny any thief gets access to three identities that all look like him, okay, all live within, is it 10-mile radius, in Toronto. But he says he's never met any of them. Did Ray know what was happening to him after the crime? No. Okay. And, and the interesting thing about James is he was a con, and he, uh, an escaped con, and he always, um, he was so reluctant to, to give information about anybody who he thought who was genuinely trying to help him. It's kind of this mentality that convicts have. I mean, even when he escaped from prison once, 
because the guard fell asleep and they held an investigation, internal investigation. And he wouldn't say that the guard fell asleep. That's how he escaped. He protected the guard. He said, I might need him again someday. <laughs> I mean, this was the kind of, the kind of guy that, that, uh, that he was. And the Joe Brown situation and the identity situation with, with James or the other two areas that you raised, James was given the identity of an individual who had national security clearance at the highest level. His name was Eric Galt. So James's actual identity was Eric S. Galt. Now why would James be given that identity? Well, I believe he was given that identity because if he was ever stopped, and he was clumsy, and he got himself into trouble from time to time, if he ever stopped, you know, you know, this is a guy who really often didn't know where to be at what time. I mean, he would show up for a burglary too late, and the, the time lock would be already on the safe, you know? And, and the staff would say, we'll give you our money, and James said, I don't want your money. <laughs> we can't get into the safe. I mean, that's a, he carried five bullets in his gun rather than six, and he kept the firing pin chamber empty because he shot himself in the foot once, you know? <laughs> this is the kind of guy he was when Hickman Ewing asked him, what would you do? You say you never kill anybody. No. What would you do? If I, you, you pointed a gun at me and I owned a store and I pulled a gun out and I pointed my gun at you and your gun at me. He said, what would you do in that case? You wouldn't kill me? He said, I'd say let's make a deal. <laughs> you know, that's a, a kind of, a, sort of the kind of aimless character that he was. Eric S. Galt is significant because he was the head of the warehouse, the inventory for Union Carbide in Toronto. And Union Carbide was working with the 902nd Military Intelligence Group for the shipment at that particular time of uh, proximity fuses to Israel. It would have been an illegal uh, shipment, and they were doing it through Canada. Now, so you have the 902nd, which is coordinating all of this, huh? meeting with Eric Galt, whose identity somehow becomes that of James Earl Ray. I mean, you could say, well, that's coincidental, isn't it? You know, but uh, I don't think it's quite so coincidental. The man who ran the 902nd and who coordinated the assassination of Martin Luther King, and who was the actual point man, and only one of the various members of the task force who knew everything that was going on, was a man called Colonel John Downey. Colonel John Downey, after Orders to Kill, the first book came out in November of 1995. On New Year's Day, 1996, Steve Tompkins got a call from Colonel John Downey. And he said, I've read Pepper's book, and he's basically got it right, but he's given me too much responsibility. I was following orders every day. And he said, and I will be happy to meet with not with him, but with you, because this was Tompkins, who was also former Naval Intelligence, and I'll tell you how this whole thing went down. And those meetings started in Bermuda. And I was not supposed to be present, but I was on the island as the meetings took place, and Steve reported to me. And we are very confused, because Colonel John Downey officially uh, died in 1981 or 82. And to this day, and, and one of his best friends was interviewed by a colleague of mine and said he was at the funeral. So one of the things Downey said to Tompkins right off the bat was, they will tell you I am dead, but I've been given a new identity.
to this day, I don't know what the truth is about that because um, he just went away when the whole military thing blew up and became very public. He just went away. And so I don't know whether that man was an imposter. And I, I tend to think he was probably an imposter because he would have been much younger. This guy, I think, was younger than Downey would have been. And they, they were just now trying to take over our investigation and steer us in certain ways. You know, I mean, that's possible. Um, yes? Would you comment on the ballistic evidence? The ballistics evidence. It seems like there were two rifles involved. Well, there was a throw-down gun. And it was not the murder weapon. James purchased it in Birmingham, Alabama, at Raoul's request. He bought um, he bought one rifle and brought it back to the motel, Travelodge in Birmingham. Showed it to Raoul. Said that's not. The, I wanted a thirty or six. He it wasn't a thirty or six. The first one. And so it was a two forty three caliber. So Raoul said, no, it's got to be a thirty or six. So James went back, and in fact he pointed it out in a catalog which one it was to be with Remington Game Master. He went back. Next day, exchanged the gun, brought it to Memphis, and turned it over, apparently, to Raoul the night before. That was the gun that was found on the street. That was the throwdown. That was the throwdown gun. The real weapon, the real rifle, or the murder weapon, there have been a number of different stories about what happened to it. Uh, Jowers, at one point, indicated he gave it to back to Liberto because of... Liberto was taking care of it. He turned it over to one of Liberto's people. I believe what really happened to that rifle was that Jowers gave it to a taxi driver friend of his called McGraw, James McGraw. And James McGraw threw it off the old Memphis, Arkansas bridge into the Mississippi River the night of the killing. And the reason I believe that is because I knew James McGraw for... <coughs> A long time, <laughs> 15 years. And he had a lot of courage. And he was—he put Jowers in the frame initially. And he, there always seemed to be more that he wanted to say. And he gave James uh, an alibi. He was up in the bathroom within minutes of the killing because he was supposed to pick Charlie Stevens up. Charlie Stevens was a, the state's only witness against James, and he was dead drunk. And McCraw wouldn't even carry him in his taxi cab because he was so drunk. So... Um, McGraw was trying to tell the right thing, but he never told me that he threw that gun off the bridge. I think he thought that was a step too far. He, while he was alive, he could still have, he thought maybe be prosecuted for it. The reason we found out about it is because we found his a roommate of his. They used to have rooms, shared rooms in a rooming house on Memphis, and this roommate, consistently with no reason to lie whatsoever said McGraw would never talk much about the case until he, unless he was drunk. But when he got drunk, then he would tell a story, and always the same story, factually the same, time after time. And it was that Jowers asked him to throw this rifle away into the, into the, uh, into the river, and he did it. And that's what happened to the murder weapon, the, probably the real murder weapon. That in some way seems strange to me that they would have relied upon Jowers to get rid of it, um, such an important weapon like that. But maybe, Liberto definitely had control over Jowers, and so maybe he figured he had enough control over him that he would do it. The reason he had control over Jowers is because 
uh, he took a body of a man that Jowers killed and uh, disposed of it. So there was never a match of a bullet retrieved from King never. a rifle never. that was in the possession at any time? Never. The weapon, the throw-down gun, could never, the bullets, the slugs were never matched. It was always in what they call inconclusive. And the state would say, aha, see, it's inconclusive. You can't eliminate it. Well, I mean, it's not up to you to eliminate, up to them to prove it is. But uh, the thing about that rifle, that throw-down rifle, was when the, I read the FBI ballistics tests, and they said that the scope was so out of line that you would be shooting, I think it was something like uh, four inches to the left and six inches below the target, something like that. In other words, you could not shoot through that scope of the rifle they had. It was not, it was not sighted in properly. Are you at liberty to elaborate on your, your conversations or conversation with Raul? Yeah, I mean, it was, not, it was not a big thing. A British a news a reporter uh, had gotten on to Raoul as well and was trying to get trying to get an interview and trying to get to him and was um, knocking on his door and harassing him to an extent and uh, actually was the one who showed the photograph of Raoul to his daughter. And the daughter looked at this photograph that everyone had said, yes, that's, that's the... Raoul was with James O'Reilly. And the daughter saw this photograph. She said, well... Anybody could get that photograph of my father. So without knowing it, I have her on tape, because I have the tape. Without knowing it, she actually put her father right. That is Raoul, right? So um, when, the, when the reporters were trying to get to him, I said, look, um, uh, I know you're being harassed. I know these reporters are trying to get to you. I'd like to talk to you and just sit down. And if you have nothing to do with this and you're, you, you're innocent, of any involvement, and you're not the Raoul we think you are, then I'll make a statement to that effect and try to call him off. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't meet. He said he would think about it, but he wouldn't meet. And then he hired a law firm. Somehow he got this real blue-chip law firm in New York to represent him. We tried, actually, to uh, sue him and bring him into court and depose him. And... Um, I mean, they, they just, they made it virtually impossible to get him because he was, we were going to have to do it in Memphis. It was a Memphis case and he would, we couldn't go there. So you didn't have a conversation with him? I talked to him on the telephone, but I never interviewed him oh. and he would not, he would not talk to me. I talked to him on the telephone. Oh, okay. But he, his, when all this furor started about Raul, uh, it was a strange thing. Federal officials, officers, technicians start showing up at the house of this retired um, assembly line worker and uh, advising the family on how to answer the telephone, putting taps on their, on their phones. And uh, his wife told a Portuguese reporter, because Raul was Portuguese, told a Portuguese reporter how wonderful the American government was because they were giving them all this assistance. And, and I subpoenaed her to testify at the trial. She's a friend of mine. She became a friend of mine. And I subpoenaed her to testify at the trial, and she was livid with me. She was, because reporters don't like to be called to testify. She was livid. I said, your evidence is so important. You talked to this woman who said, that, you know, that the United States government was in helping this family of a retired assembly line worker. You know, they sent technicians in. <laughs> they're tapping folks. Like, this shows some significance of this guy, right? 
So you must testify, she, and she wouldn't do it voluntarily, so I subpoenaed her, and she took the stand. She was a hostile witness. But she told the truth. She said, did this happen? Yes, it happened. She told the truth. I think, we are, I think we're about done. You've been very patient, huh? And you've had a lot of questions. And, uh, but, uh, one more question. How long can we keep up the charade of a republic here? Uh, I mean, the media is going to have you keep it up for a very long time. It'll be very resilient because the media will keep it up and, and the politicians will talk about it. But you know, when they passed the Patriots Act uh, in November, was November uh, after 9-11, if you ever read the Patriots Act, you see it's, the end is there. Um, they tried to get that kind of legislation through before many times and failed. And there was only one senator to vote against the passage of the Patriots Act. It was 99 to 1, Russ Feingold. So anyway, liberty requires eternal vigilance. So that's all you can do is try to keep yourself as aware as possible and um, teach your children. And be skeptical, ask questions. Okay, we're done. listening to attorney and author William Pepper. William Pepper is author of An Act of State, The Assassination of Martin Luther King. Today's show has been An Act of State, Part 2, from a presentation by the author in 2003 in Long Beach, California, upon the publication of his book. He is also author of Orders to Kill, The Truth Behind the Murder of Martin Luther King, from 1995. In addition to being a close friend and associate of Martin Luther King in the last year of Dr. King's life, William Pepper represented James Earl Ray on appeal of his conviction for Dr. King's assassination. William Pepper can be contacted by email at wpintlawus at aol.com. That's wpintlawus at AOL.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Trying to steal your life